Health Tech listeners, I'm your host this week, Justine Abson. This is the podcast where we tackle some of the trending topics, ideas and best practice across health and social care. A year ago, we launched the podcast as a platform for health and social care professionals to have open discussions, talk about their challenges and look at where they really make a difference for people across the world. We've talked to some amazing people this year um, across the industry and we've covered topics such as regulation, innovation, mental health, health inequalities, PSURF, culture and so much more. We're really proud of the impact that What The Health Tech has had and this week we're going to look back at some of our fantastic industry speakers and see what they had to share with us. This week we're talking to Georgina Watkinson. Georgina has been a training officer for over 20 years, initially working in the corporate sector before specialising in health and social care for the last 12 years. Georgina has a passion to understand dementia and mental health and has been a mental health first aid trainer since 2019. There can still be stigma in some places when it comes to sickness from mental health compared to sort of physical sickness. Um, Have you got any advice that you would offer workplaces to sort of look into this? I think being honest about people's workload and life uh, balance, I think really to to look at what is going on within that work life um, and home life. And I think a big thing is the trying to be a little bit more non-judgmental. So if somebody is having reoccurring colds and sicknesses, is it perhaps lifestyle? Is there a reason why the lifestyle's impacting the health? And then obviously for the for the work life as well. You know, so I think a lot around that stigma needs to be addressed. Um, So for any of our listeners who don't know what to expect from mental health first aid training, could you give us an overview of what someone on the course could maybe take away from this? They are obviously there because they want to become mental health first aiders. I think what a lot of people do take away from the course is their own reflection, reflecting how they may look into another person's state of mind and again that judgmental sort of feeling that we all have but not in a malicious way but sometimes I think we look and think we couldn't help it's just sort of focusing on just being there to listen to somebody can be as well as you know thinking that oh my gosh I'm gonna sort of get them to the doctors or anything it's just that first point can be a huge step for somebody and I do think a lot of people do reflect on their own prejudgments coming into the course. I think we're always a little bit frightened of, of sort of um, almost being a nosy neighbour. And I obviously don't mean that for us to be. But taking care of, you know, saying hello to the next door neighbour, you know, sort of being a little bit kinder to the person that might not be acting the same way as what we might be acting and just taking note that you know your own um sort of way around people could have a a massive impact on them you know what i think that's a really really interesting point we actually spoke to biggie and donahue um a couple of weeks ago in the podcast and he does a lot of work around loneliness and dementia um and he mentioned exactly the same thing you know i think he used the quote something like you know you can't change the world but you can change your street which is exactly the the same point you've just made um so yeah if it if anybody hasn't listened to that episode, then then go back and listen to episode two because it's a it is a great listen. Today I'm joined by uh, Big Ian Donaghy. Big Ian is a speaker, a doer, 
He works tirelessly to raise awareness of dementia and combat loneliness. He taught young people with learning difficulties for 20 years and spent the last 10 years in the world of care. In this episode, we're going to find out more about the amazing work Ian does and how we can help him raise awareness of such important topics. I work for nobody. I work with everybody. And that is the difference. If you feel like you're owned by anybody, you cannot be creative. If you work with somebody, oh, you can make magic happen. Yeah, no, I'm, I've, yeah, I advocate that. I mean, it's something that's passionate to us at Radar Healthcare in terms of working with people rather mm. than being prescriptive. Loneliness is a pandemic that nobody's looking for a vaccine for, and it kills people. It kills people, does loneliness. And I'm writing a new book that's called Hello which is all about the most significant five letters in our lives. Because we control hello. We have little saying goodbye. And so I'm writing a book to combat loneliness that shows people, do you know the 7.54 billion people in this world? Why do you think you've got to stop? Like I'm 51. Why do I have to not have any more friends? I was at a dementia cafe in New York talking to a bloke called Peter. And Peter was a good laugh, like. And our Bill uh, said uh, to Peter, says, so what are you doing at Christmas, Peter? And he went, oh, well, um, my wife's died and my two sons, one has got a good job in France and the other one works in uh, computers in San Francisco. So it's just me, Doctor Who, and a male for one. And our Bill went, well, that's, that's wrong, is that? So he came out and we went to the car with M, me and our Bill and our Annie. And he goes, so what are you going to do about that then, Dad? I went, what do you mean? Peter's by himself on Christmas Day. What are you going to do about it? I went, hold on, how is it my, what, how, when did it become my job to help out everybody? We could do it. We could help him out, couldn't we, Dad? We could have, he could have Christmas Day with us. He says, why not, even better, why don't we get a load of people, Dad, who otherwise would be al- alone on Christmas Day, and give them a big family Christmas together. And then I looked at them and I went, that'd be a lot of work, but it would be ace. And so we set up Christmas presents. I got on Twitter, I said, I've drawn this daft logo. Can somebody design it for now? I've got a budget of now. I'm doing this with a budget of now. I'm going to feed people with a budget of now. I'm going to blag stuff. And we did, and we started it um, 2015, I put a thing out on Facebook in York that said, wanted people to give up Christmas Day and work really hard for now. Now, a lot of the look at me as I would call them, look at me, look at me, I'm doing nice things. Look at me. <laughs> Nowhere to be seen. Enter a load of people I'd never met and now who I would take a bullet for. People who are incredible. I've got a couple called... Uh, David and Beverly Lonsdale in York. I am not joking you. I have never met people. Their their whole constitution, it's like, they're like hearts on legs. There's no I can't ask them to do that they won't do. They are the reason Christmas presents happens, not me. If you take loneliness and dementia, um, something you're passionate about, um, you know, how can... Our listeners, you know, people out there, what, what can we do to help? Is it, you mentioned there about being engaged with 
Twitter, social media, LinkedIn, those kind of things. Something easier. Uh, you can't change the world. You can have an impact on your street. And the people who, you know, the, the person who lives down the street, don't let them be the little old woman with the, with the Staffordshire Bull Terrier. Let her be Barbara. And then find out about Barbara. And find out if Barbara needs out. This week, we're talking to Lottie Moore from Public Policy Projects. Lottie has worked in public policy for several years and is particularly interested in social justice and health. She joined Public Policy Projects in January 2021 and has launched several reports on health equalities since then. Firstly, is talking about it um, is a way to remove that stigma. But I think as well, it's about... Um, getting the men on site too you know and that it's very easy for women to talk to their friends and sit in the pub and talk about you know their periods or you know whatever it is but you need to talk to men about it as well because ultimately you know the system we live in lots of men are in power so you need to get them on side as well um i think that's probably a key you know key thing so one of the key themes is involved in the paper is is around assisted conception um, and the postcode lottery that's involved with the process of things like IVF. Um, how can reports like this help to look at readdressing these issues? It, this was an international report, so we weren't just looking at the UK. And in certain communities, in particularly in, in, in um, middle and low income countries, um, you are not going to get through the door to talk to women about um, stopping having children if you're not also going to tell them to have children, because in sub-Saharan Africa particularly, women are seen as just baby makers. They are literally just reproductive vehicles. And so, you know, in those communities where the men are really in charge, you know, if you're going to go and try and talk to, talk to you know, someone's wife about how to stop having babies, you have to tell them how they can have them as well. And that was a really kind of tactical thing that we thought, well, you know, we can't just go into these, you know, recommend that these women all suddenly start taking contraception which would would be would be more appropriate in the UK context because the the the, the scale of the problem is so different you know um internationally you know compared to what we're facing here but particularly with the IVF and then in in the UK as well it's become a really commercialized industry so you know actually i think it was last year um IVF was um more you know the, the, more money was generated from IVF than cosmetic surgery which is crazy considering you're meant to have three cycles on the NHS um that's that doesn't happen um but people are so desperate that they pay for it and they're paying for services that are actually um no, with no proven necessary you know no no proven kind of scientific evidence that it will help them to have a child but we wanted to really tackle this thing of you know why is IVF seen as this sort of privilege or this sort of medical extra when you know the world health organization it, it is diag it is a disease infertility is considered a disease so why do we treat it as if it's like you know having a lip filler do you know what i mean so yeah that was that was sort of part of why we we chose ivf um and and the solutions are again you know more simple than that was always the point of this project was that actually none of the recommendations that we came up with were particularly complex or difficult or you know we weren't saying you know they were actually you know, also reasonably cheap um it was just about reallocating resources and getting people to realize where there were barriers that didn't need to be in place and i think the other thing is that you know 
we've seen particularly in America, which is you know supposedly a liberal democracy, uh, abortion is being legal uh, illegal illegalized. <laughs> it's being made illegal in certain states. Yeah, so you can't ever take for granted women's health. The gains that we've made, we can't take them for granted because if somewhere like the US can then make abortion illegal, you know, no one's safe from it. And you know, the thing is, is what 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 I always say is, if you stop, if you if you make abor- abortion illegal. You're not going to stop women having abortions. Women are going to have abortions anyway, but they're, they're going to do it in an unsafe way and they're going to die potentially. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you don't, you don't, if you make something more difficult, you don't stop it happening. Um, and I think there's a lot of things like that in women's health, you know. This week, we're speaking to Judy Walker, senior business consultant at ITS Leadership. Judy is a subject matter expert in after action review approach and has been instrumental in developing ARRs for use in the NHS higher education and the private sector. For our listeners, what is an ARR? Well, an after-action review is essentially a conversation that is structured to ensure that you get the best possible outcomes. So it's, it's, a, it's a four question model. I mean, lots of people that are listening today will be know about um, Agile and techniques to debrief. But the yeah. after-action review is a really um, structured and highly educational um, model to enable people to learn from a shared experience together. It's a descriptive process. But what is really different about it and why it's so um, incredible to see it now written into the new patient safety instant response framework is that it's, uh, it takes the learning to the ward level it previously investigations and um, uh, root cause analysis have been done to people. Yeah. So the responsibility for learning and improving has rested with the organization, the investigator, the person appointed to do the root cause analysis after a patient safety event. This shifts, this gives you a chance to actually have the conversation at the ward level with those directly involved and enable them to learn for themselves. So it's a fantastic, um, the democratic process that really um, is quite transformational in how it educates and um, enables people to change for themselves. What makes a good conductor? So if I if I am, you know, if you're looking for those types of, is it is it best to have different roles, different individuals? Is there a type of personality that makes a good conductor? Do you, do you look for different things when you're kind of implementing this in an organisation, or, or should it be kind of a mix of, of almost anybody? This is about learning how to serve others. Learning, so. You know, it's a real skill. And I have to say that so many of the people I've trained as AR conductors who've, who've fallen in love with the process like I have, they, their, their careers just take off because they're learning some key skills that yeah. are so valuable. So it's, it's really useful for that sort of your talent to develop your talent so that people develop their questioning skills and their listening skills and their self-awareness skills. And of course, facilitating after action reviews when things haven't gone so well for others means that you get deep insight into, you know, the stuff that is happening across your uh, your organisation. I know kind of we worked quite closely 
on how you can use radar to you know, track those learnings, to be able to report on that evidence. Your vision of what this looks like. So obviously, kind of PSURF has come out. Part of that is around obviously, you know, you're, you're learning from 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 what's going on. This this being one of those tools, one of those mechanisms. I'm going to offer a, a slightly controversial view here. The 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 real powerful change that comes yeah. from an after action review is in the people themselves. So okay. uh, the, we, we get the most learning when we realize it for ourselves. So that's the sort of prince, that's the fundamental principle of an after action review that, uh, that we, we, people learn, that we make every AR count yeah. rather than counting the AARs. But we do need to count the AARs and we need, do need to map and keep a finger on the pulse of the themes that are emerging. And this is where, you know, the technology that radar has, it could be so, so powerful to enable an organization to feel the heat spots. We've got lots of AR activity over in maternity. That is wonderful because they are obviously a healthy team that is monitoring and including everybody in their learning. You know, you could just do a heat map of, of, of where AR activity is. That, and that would give you a sign of healthy behaviors. There are so many ways this could really add value to understanding um, the patient safety culture in a trust, as well as extracting the themes that are emerging around clinical leadership, around yeah. internal, external communications, and around the sort of key issues that, that emerge. So I'm, I'm going to champion the power of the AR to be its own agent of change. And we need a system to actually give us the, the rest, the icing on the cake that will just make it um, so much more than it is already. At the end of every episode, we ask a what the health tech moment. Um, so it's basically a question for a bit of fun. And we want to hear about kind of any weird or wonderful stories that you've experienced in kind of health and social care. Um, so I was just wondering kind of what's your what's your what the health tech moment? So I was working in paediatrics in the early 90s. And in paediatrics, actually, you would be shocked by how badly children and their parents were treated relative to today. Hmm. Parents were not welcome. I mean, it was, you know, they were given a bed, a chair by the bed if their child was really ill. You know, it was, it, there was no sort of facilities for parents and the, they were not uh, really that welcome. And children were expected to behave perfectly. And this was, this was a real chat. So there was no accommodation, no adaptation to a child's own particular needs. And this meant that in the radiotherapy department of the hospital where I was working, children who were having radiotherapy would be anaesthetized every single day for their six weeks of um, cancer treatment. I showed that, and I took it one patient at a time, I showed that if you played with children in the radiotherapy room with teddies and dolls and allowed them to get a sense of how the machine worked and where mum and dad would be standing and you know what it was like for the teddy bear to lie still and then to practice lying still themselves, I showed that children could lie still.
without any need for any general anaesthetic. And today that is the standard practice that all, for all paediatric services, you know, there's time now built into treatment plans so that children have a chance to play and to learn at the pace that works for them so they can go through radiotherapy treatment without the need for this, a general anaesthetic or other, you know, restrictions. That's so fantastic. I'm very proud of that. This week, I'm talking to Anthony Hall. Anthony is the Director of Insights, Assurance and Governance at HC1, the UK's largest elderly residential care provider, which has over 300 care homes and provides positive, personalised care and support to 14,000 residents. So you used to work for the Care Quality Commission. Can you let us know a little bit about what you did there and how different it is going from the regulatory body side to being inspected as an organisation? I started as an inspector uh, and I inspected, uh, you know, countless numbers of care homes uh, and, and domiciliary care providers uh, in the sort of Lincolnshire area predominantly. And then I moved over to become uh, what's called an inspection manager, which was, you know, running a, a team of inspectors. And it was at that time the commission, you know, widened its scope away from just social care inspections to, to GPs, dental and, and secondary care. And I was also at the time when uh, the chief executive changed to, to and Sir David Bean came in and developed the whole ratings framework, which was all around quality improvement. And so I was quite heavily involved with that. I had the great pleasure of working directly for Professor Steve Field, who was the chief inspector of primary care. Uh, and I worked very closely with him on developing the whole primary care inspection structure and how that whole methodology came together. Working with the regulator is about assurance. It's about providing the regulator with assurance. And that has to be a continual part of, of your work. It can't just be waiting for an inspection and then seeing what the outcome is and then providing evidence to, to either challenge it or, or, or an action plan to address the, the issues. You have to do this on an ongoing basis and provide the regulator with assurance. Now, as the regulator is now moving to sort of some more remote monitoring as opposed to just relying on physical inspection, that's even more important. And this is about talking to inspectors. This is about talking to the inspection managers, the people. It's about engagement at a very strategic level in the commission. We did a, a whole a, internal assessments um, for all of our homes. And the chief executive and myself, we actually showed CQC the outcome of all of that. And people kind of said to us, are you mad? Are you actually going to show the regulator where your failings are and where you needed to improve? And we said, absolutely we are. And we went through all of these 24 elements and we showed them exactly where our homes were. And we actually showed them that, you know, there were a substantial number of homes in particular areas that needed to improve. And actually, the, the, the result of that has been a high level of assurance by the Commission that, A, we know where our challenges are and we have that granularity and we understand what, uh, what the issues are. And then we're able to articulate the journey about how we're going to improve those issues. So transparency is absolutely key. And we're, we're working with the Commission at the moment to try and, you know, and as we develop our work with Radar Healthcare, 
is to to give them access to this stuff. We want to give them access to our systems. Have you got any advice or tips on on what else care providers could do to create a more open dialogue of communication with their CQC inspectors and how they can share best practice? Just talk to them, you know, and and explain what's going on in your home. They will and they will get a lot of assurance from that. But you have to be proactive about it and, you know, contact the the, the inspector. For those people who are sort of a, a more corporate level, then contact the heads of inspection, contact the, you know, right at the top of the tree and, 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 and do that and talk to them and build those relationships. But it needs to be at all levels in the company and just go out there and build them because I, I, I can assure you the CQC inspectors will really appreciate it. This week, I'm speaking to Dr. Amelia Malimpakis, who is co-founder and CEO of Thymia, a mental health tech startup building video games that can accurately detect whether a patient has depression by analysing biomarkers, including voice, video and behaviour using artificial intelligence. If you can give our listeners a bit of an overview of what you do and what inspired you to set the company up. Sure, absolutely. So Themia is a mental health tech startup. We're based here in London and our mission is to make mental health as objectively measurable and as monitorable as physical health. So in the same way that a physical health clinician uses something like a thermometer or a blood pressure cuff to monitor physical health in terms of symptoms and conditions, we are basically building the equivalent of a blood pressure cuff for mental health. So we get our users to interact with us with different gamified activities. And these um, gather three types of data. They look at people's voice patterns. So we're analyzing how they sound and what they're saying. Secondly, we look at video. So this is everything we can pick up from a smart device camera. It could be your eye gaze patterns. It could be your facial micro expressions. It could be upper body movements. It could be twitching, things like that. And then finally, we look at what you're actually doing in our activities. So are you reacting quickly when we show you something? Are you reacting slowly? How are you tapping on the screen, swiping? All of that is super valuable information. We combine all of that, and then at the end, we can uh, make a judgment as to whether someone may or may not have a particular condition. Um, In particular, we're looking at major depression, generalized anxiety, and most recently, ADHD. But we can also go in a lot more depth and look at what the particular symptoms of these conditions might be and try to isolate these. So we can say both whether someone may have a condition, but also how they're experiencing that condition. So things like fatigue levels, memory issues, mood swings, we can kind of capture all of that. Um, So as an expert in using language as a a biomarker for cognition, when did you realise how this could be used to, to diagnose a mental health condition? So I was always aware that this can be used in this way. Um, what I wasn't aware of was that it was not being used in this way. I kind of naively thought that everything we're finding out in research, like in amazing universities. So I was at UCL for a long time and I thought UCL is kind of at that point it was it was wavering between first and second in the world for neuroscience. Uh, so we were kind of competing with Harvard. And I was thinking, oh, amazing. Everything we're finding out in in research here is going to be used by clinicians. That's not the reality at all. Um, And I didn't realize that until my best friend developed depression. She was also an academic. um, And unfortunately, with academics, this is actually really common. That's a whole other topic in itself. Um, (laughs) 
but it does mean that um, we didn't really think anything of it. And I thought, oh, she'll see a clinician. They'll they'll see how she's doing, and um, you know they'll put her on some treatment, and she'll be fine. She ended up seeing people in the university, then in the NHS. She got put on really long waiting list. Eventually, she decided to pay to see a psychiatrist, and none of them actually saw how bad her condition was. And just two days after seeing her psychiatrist, she ended up trying to take her own life. And when that happened, I was the one who found her. And you can imagine kind of the whole experience was incredibly traumatic, but also how guilty, like we all felt that we didn't realize how bad the condition was. But after I got over that as a concept or as like a, a set of feelings, I started to question why her psychiatrist didn't see this coming or why the NHS didn't actually act sooner. And that's when I realized that actually they are still just using questionnaires. There's nothing else to hand. Yeah, and I think that, you know, that saying almost a picture paints a thousand words feels really powerful when we're talking about what you're discussing there. Um, I think to think features, you know, like how our faces or our eyes move or how we speak and can sort of understand symptoms and diagnose someone who might have depression or another mental health condition does definitely feel like a, a huge leap forward. What we need is technologies like Themias, but others out there as well that can in a way make mental health more visible. And that's creating that awareness, I think. That's really important as a first step. That's definitely going to get more people to be excited and to build technology that can help. Uh, individuals with mental health issues. Um, I think the other really important thing is AI is super powerful, but particularly when it comes to something invisible like mental health, where you can't really control as easily to see if something's going wrong in the model, it becomes really important that you do this in the most ethical sensitive way. I'm sure it's been really, really useful for, for all of our listeners to hear about Themia. Um, I've loved it. It's it's super exciting and I kind of can't wait to see where, where you are in another 12 months. It, it sounds fantastic. Thank you. It's been such a pleasure. Um, thank you so much. Thank you so much to everybody that has joined us on What the Health Tech this year and made it the success it's been. We're really, really proud with our 52 episodes and we can't wait to share another new episode with you next week. Thank you so much for listening. And if you've got any questions for us, our guests, or you'd like to appear as a guest, please email whatthehealthtech at radarhealthcare.com. Listener.